Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Well, my heart is full today as I bring this message to you. I started thinking about uh, this particular passage of scripture that I'm going to bring before you today some time ago, and I, so I've been thinking about it, wanting to preach on it, and so I'm delighted to bring it to your attention. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, so if you've got your Bible with you, you can feel free to turn there or look at the screen behind me. So I think that this passage is very important for us to understand, living as we do in and around Bloomington, Indiana. Why? Why is this passage in particular so important for us? Well, John is known as the apostle of love, and the book of 1 John is all about love. Whether, uh, it's, in fact, it's in 1 John chapter 4 that we get the famous statement, God is love. And of course, that sounds good to us. Whether you're a Christian or not, we all like to hear about love. If I were Tim, I would begin to sing Beatles songs to you, right? I'm not Tim, so I will not sing to you. But, um, yes, yes. But the, the, the song, all, you need, all We Need Is Love, right? This is like an anthem in our culture today. It's like an anthem uh, on the campus of Indiana University, even, right? If you go to Indiana University and you start chanting that as your slogan, you'll have a lot of people cheering you on and lifting you up and telling you how swell of a guy you are. That message of all we need is love is preached in churches and clubs all around the country and TV shows and movies talk about it all the time. And so of course, as Christians, when we hear the statement as a bare statement removed from any context of who wrote it and all that stuff, of course it's something that we can embrace. After all, if God is love, then how can we Christians have anything to say against the idea that all we need is love. If God is love, then aren't you just saying that all we need is God and which Christian is gonna be opposed to that? But if you're a Christian and you love God's word, the Bible, you're beginning to feel the noose tighten around your neck a little bit. You know this is a trap. Why is it a trap? Well, you know it's a trap because today, and especially here in Bloomington, If you believe what the Bible says and you testify about it in public, you'll be called what? A hater, right? You'll be called a hater. They'll say that your God is hateful, that he is angry, and that you yourself are simply feared or filled with fear and hatred. This is true, of course, when it comes to sexuality. And now, to state that homosexuality and transsexuality is sinful is, of course, to state something that is obviously taught in the Bible, right? But to do so today, and especially in and around Bloomington, is considered many, by many, to be even a crime. And what kind of crime? Again, a hate crime, right? <clears throat> and so this, all, this accusation, this accusation of hatred, comes as a shock to a Christian, and it really puts us on our heels. We believe that God is love, and we know that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that we are to love our neighbors, and even, yes, to love our enemies. 
We know that love is the very foundation of everything we believe. And so to be called a hater is very disarming and very confusing. The accusation goes right to the apple of our eye. It attacks, us, it attacks precisely what we hold dearest and closest to our hearts. So what are we to do? Well, we should begin as we should in most, with most things with the Bible, with the scripture. God's word to us helps us understand the real thing called love. And so when we understand what it is, we'll be able to stand up to the counterfeits. And as I studied this passage, as I studied 1 John 4, and indeed as I read through the whole book, I recognized that the love of God and the law of God are two things that you have to have together. You have to have both of them working together for either one to make sense. Okay, so keep that in the back of your mind, and we'll get more to that in a minute, but keep that in the back of your mind as we read 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this love, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So first, let's begin with the obvious. God is love. Those who love God know God. Those who love know God, and those who do not love do not know God. So John um, doesn't really speak here of God's love being something that he puts on or, you know, that he does necessarily. Um, it isn't a way simply to describe God or like an attribute of his, but he doesn't say God is loving. Instead, he says very simply, God is love. It is at the very center of who God is. God defines what love is. <clears throat> Indeed, love is from God, and any, anyone who loves truly 
is like an expression or extension or an extension of God's love. Now, he goes on to say that in this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. In what may be my favorite passage of scripture, Paul prays for the Ephesians by asking God to strengthen them so that they, will, they would know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. So the first thing to understand is that God, you, we know love because God loved us first. That's how we learn about love. John explains in verse 10 that Jesus himself is the highest expression of God's love toward us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big word, propitiation. What does that mean? It means atoning sacrifice, which is to say it's a sacrifice that makes up for, takes care of, resolves, pays for sin. Whose sin? Your sin, my sin. So the highest expression of God's love The very definition of the word love is shown to us in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a very specific man who walked the earth at a very specific time in history. Now here in Monroe County, we are told that we can believe anything we want. We think that our words are squishy and can take on any meaning that we want. We're supposed to find our own meaning, find our own way, and all that. And so... When people talk about love, it's a very vague, sentimental understanding of love. It doesn't have definition, and we're all just invited to give whatever definition we want to it. Not so with God, right? God demonstrated his love to us in a very specific, tangible way. He did so by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. And so we love because he first loved us in this very specific, tangible way. Now the passage says that because of the love, of, because of the love God has shown us in a very definite, specific way, we now live in Jesus, right? We live now having been forgiven for our sins if we accept this gift, this love that God has shown us. But another fruit of that love now is that we can have confidence at the day of judgment and we, can, we have hope in the resurrection. So in other words, we have hope in God's love not only now, but also in the future. This is what John teaches us. Furthermore, John teaches us here that we love God by loving our neighbor. Now, our love for our neighbor should not be this vague or idle or sentimental kind of general benevolence that is often talked about here in Bloomington, but instead it should be tangible with real actions, real words. Uh, it should seek, it should knock, it should pursue, it should, it should mean uh, that we knock on our neighbor's door. You know, uh, a lot of times we think of evangelism, you, you sort of keep it in the back of your mind and you think, yeah, I should, I should do that. I should think about, well, maybe next time I see them, you know, I'll, I'll talk to my neighbor or I'll, I'll invite them over. That's not the way God pursued us, right? God pursues us by seeking after us, per, uh, knocking, pursuing Love should bear long, it should wait long, pray long, it should give freely, 
It is self-sacrificing, self-denying. It thinks of others before it thinks of self. We should love others the way that God has loved us, and this is how we love God. In fact, one of the temptations people have is to say, oh, I, I don't necessarily love this person over here, but I love God, right? And um, John very clearly teaches us that if you don't love your brother, you can't say that you love God, right? But I, I want to point out one other thing. Um, there's a very real sense in which you can never love God the way that he loved you. And that's not just because God's love is so much bigger, so much infinite, but um, God loved you a sinner, right? God loved you a wicked person. God never sinned against you, right? God is not wicked, God is, the, is, is good. And so to love as God loved us, we have to love sinners. We have to love people that have full opportunity to sin against us and in fact do sin against us. And, and so again, uh, you love God the way God loved you by loving your neighbor who has, again, many opportunities to sin against you. <clears throat> Now, in all of this discussion and all this definition of what love looks like, uh, all of that happens with the backdrop of the law of God, right? The law of God is the backdrop for everything that John is teaching us here. Uh, He says that Jesus is the highest expression of God's love to us. And, and of course, um, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, came to pay the penalty for the law that we broke. And so, again, love uh, is one of the basic things he's teaching us is that love is meaningless apart from law. Let me, let me sh- explain that a little more. So God is the lawgiver and judge of this world that you find yourself in. Just in case you didn't know, this world that you are in, God made, and he is the lawgiver. He is the one to whom you will give an account, that will, the one that you will be judged by. Now, I said earlier that God's love isn't like some kind of extension of himself, but rather it's more central than that. God's love is essential to who he is. The same is true of God's law. Now, we live in a scientific age, and we've got scientists all over the country, all over the world, scurrying around, studying this and that. And so uh, we recognize these things that we call laws of physics or laws of math and so forth, and we, and we recognize that they're not optional, right? You don't get to decide when you wake up this morning whether or not you're going to obey the law of physics, right? You don't get to decide this. You just will by definition. Uh, but, and yet we, so we, we, we understand that, and yet we deny that God's moral law is like that, and we think we can just take it or leave it. We think that we can just take or leave God's moral law, which is just as inflexible as the laws of mathematics or physics or anything else we find in the natural world, if not more so. And so, uh, and when we're talking to our friends and neighbors who do not know God, I think we're, this is a temptation we often fall into. We're tempted to speak and act as if God's law is optional. We assume, maybe for the sake of uh, finding common ground, that uh, you shouldn't take law, God's law for granted. But I think that's the wrong approach. 
Uh, it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe, we, all, we are all right now living under the laws of God. And we will all one day give an account to God for how we've done under those laws. Jesus said, whatever you reap, you will sow. This is a law that's, that, that God has baked into everything you see and everything you don't see. Everything, right? Imagine taking a flight to Saudi Arabia, right? This is a place that, whose laws are completely different than ours. If you got off the plane in Saudi Arabia and you started to live and act as if you were still in Bloomington, you would probably pretty soon end up in jail, right? Or something worse would happen to you. And who would be, and who would you have to blame, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to turn and blame anybody because you were living in their country and they've got the right to make laws as they want them. If that's, if that's true uh, in countries, how much more so God's laws while in God's country, right? This is God's world that, you find, that we find ourselves in, and God's moral law is baked into everything. We will one day give an account, no matter how much we might think in this life, that we will simply get away with it, right? We're not going to get away with it. <clears throat> so then, what do the law of God and the love of God have to do with one another? The answer is very simple. We are trapped in our guilt because of our sin, and before we can love or be loved, we must be released from our guilt before the law of God. And so this is why Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the pinnacle of God's love toward us, because it frees us from that guilt, from that condemnation. Now I want to make just a little aside. Um, this is not new information to you. It's good news, and it's good, good to be reminded, good to hear. But it's not new information if you've been a Christian for any length of time. <clears throat> and, uh, and yet, if you have been a Christian for some length of time, it's not unlikely that you have been a little confused about your relationship to the law of God. So we've been preaching through the Psalms, right? And it's in the Psalms where David regularly will break forth into praise about the wonders and the delights of God's law. And as a Christian, you might wonder, well, okay, the law is good, sure, I get that, but then why does it make me feel bad sometimes, even as a Christian? And it's a good question, uh, but here's the answer, and it's, it's, it's simple. God's law is always good, right? Even uh, when... Um, the Bible talks about the law of God being a tutor to, to get us to something, uh, uh, to get us to Jesus. It, it's acknowledging that the law is good because the law flows from God's perfect nature. It's an expression of God's perfect holiness and his perfect love. Just a few verses later in John chapter five, or first John chapter five, it says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not, not grievous. So Christians are to delight in the law of God because it is good and because we love God. And even though we aren't perfect and continue to struggle with sin, uh, we can delight in it because Jesus has, is our advocate and has freed us from the condemnation of the law. We don't need to dread the judgment of God because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. So even as we confess our sin, which we should do, of course, uh, we don't need to dread coming before God because we know we have an advocate. We have a, uh, someone 
who is speaking on our behalf in heaven, namely Jesus. This is not the case for those who have rejected God's love demonstrated through Jesus Christ. If this is you, then you are indeed under God's wrath, being justly condemned for breaking God's perfect law. <clears throat> now I want to take a few minutes um, to address objections to what I've been saying so far. And we live in a pluralistic and relativistic age, uh, especially here in, Bloom- in Bloomington, Monroe County. And so I want to I deal with some objections. Most of these objections, as I was thinking this through, I realized that most of these objections really uh, center on the law of God, right? Some will, ca- will claim, for instance, that the law of God is harsh and unloving. This is perhaps what I consider maybe the most honest of the objections, um, and for that reason, I like it the best. Uh, indeed, many, many people uh, who have grown up in the church, uh, grew up maybe going to church, going to Sunday school, have known about the law of God from a young age and have grown ashamed of it, right? They've grown ashamed of its teaching about sexuality maybe or something else. Um, and so they've decided that God is harsh and mean, Now the first thing you need to recognize about this accusation against the law of God is that it is an accusation against God himself. God's law has been with us since the beginning of creation. It's not new. We didn't come up with it. I didn't come up with it, certainly. And so if you condemn the law that God has revealed in this book, you're accusing the God who has given us this book, right? It's pretty obvious. Um, But more than that, you've accused everyone else in this book who loves God's law, not least of which is Jesus, right? A lot of people say, well, I love Jesus, I love the things that he said, but I don't like God's law. Well, it's, it's, that's a, uh, an absurd thing to say. Jesus loved God's law. He said repeatedly that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. <clears throat> And so the answer to this accusation, if someone throws out there that God is harsh and unloving, my, my answer to you is that the answer can only be seen through the eyes of faith. And who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Jesus, who said that he came that we might have life and have it to the fullest? He warned us about the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Are you going to believe him, this offer, Jesus, the offer of love that God has given to us? Or are you going to believe the devil who has from the foundation of the world uh, uh, contradicted God and tried to lie to us about what God has said, right? Has God really said, the devil asked Eve in the garden. Did you know, the devil wonders aloud, that God is harsh and cruel and that he's withholding many good things from you? If you serve me, I'll be pleased to give them to you. This is always the lie that the devil gives us. It's the lie from the very beginning. We like to whine and complain that we can't believe or maybe can't obey because God hasn't given us what we need. A common accusation along this line uh, goes like this. I'd love you, God, if you would simply love me as I am. How, How many of you heard that kind of thing? Love me as I am. You've heard that, right? It's common. But see, this is just a clever way to get our eye off the ball. Someone who demands to be loved just the way they are is simply playing a trick on you. Because of course, God is willing to love us just the way we are. There's no other way that God could love us, right? 
But he also commands us to repent of our sin, and that's the sticking point for someone who, who is demanding to be loved just the way they are. They don't actually want to be loved just the way they are. They want to continue in their sin, and they are accusing God of being cruel and harsh uh, for rejecting them as they determine to continue in their sin. They're, they're blaming God for their sin. And this gets me to a very, very important principle that I want you to remember Um, and especially remember with your children, right? My children, I've heard this from my children. I mean, we say it as well as adults. Um, But uh, never let sin be spoken of as a misfortune, right? Never let sin be spoken of as a misfortune, as something bad that happened to you, right? Never let your sin, right, be spoken of as a misfortune. Uh, I've, I've... spoken, I've, I've advertised the book, God's Way of Peace, God's Way of Holiness, up here in my, I think I'm, even in my last sermon I did that. It's really a wonderful book. I'm going to quote from it again today. Never let sin be spoken of as a misfortune. It is awfully sinful. Its root is the desperate wickedness of the heart. How evil must that heart be when it will not even believe? If our helplessness and hardness of heart lessened our guilt, then the more wicked we became, the less responsible and the less guilty, right? Did you catch that? If our helplessness and hardness of heart lessened our guilt, then the more wicked we became, the less responsible and the less guilty we would be, which is ridiculous, of course. The sinner who loves his sin so much that he cannot part with it is the most guilty. And again, I've heard this from my children. I'm always, I'm tempted to say it. Um, Don't let your, if your children come to you and say that the thing that, you know, uh, somehow accidentally they hit their brother in the head with the stick, you know, um, do not let sin be spoken of as a misfortune in your life or in your children's lives. Now, Another thing to keep in mind is that those who accuse God of being too harsh, uh, who make this claim, generally have an idea of what they think is actually loving, right? They have their own definition of love. These kinds of people uh, might be very moral and upright. They might have live upright lives. They might they they claim to strive for and maybe even have some of the virtues associated with love already. Virtues like tolerance or kindness or patience or compassion, things like that. In short, they accuse God of evil for his standard and propose a different standard. Now, if you stray from the standard of love found in the scriptures, there are, of course, many other options out there. Uh, Every religion out there, whether it's old or new, is an attempt to offer you a different standard. But if you're bored with those and you live in Monroe County, um, we like to think very highly of ourselves around here, Uh, you can make up your own standard, which is what we do, right? Uh, Maybe you think that some kind of particular enormous self-sacrifice is the thing that demonstrates that you're a loving person, that you're a kind person. Um, Maybe you've got a rule that if you work to reduce other people's suffering more than you contribute to it, Uh, Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you're not even as ambitious as that and your standard is just this vague notion of tolerating other people or getting along or something like this. Maybe this is the standard that you're appealing to. 
My point is this, any, in the end, any talk of love apart from God's law is an attempt to establish some other law, right? Any attempt to talk of love apart from the law of God is an attempt to establish some other law. And this is done with a lot of sleight of hand. You know, the song, All We Need Is Love, is just a great sleight of hand. It doesn't talk about the standard necessarily, although maybe it does a little bit. I don't even remember all the words of the song. Um, But at the back of it, there's always some standard that they're appealing to. And so at the end of the day, trying to substitute your standard for God's is hopeless for one of at least two reasons. On the one hand, if you're just coming up with silly rules in your own head or listening to some pop song um, of a guy that was probably smoking dope when he wrote it, um, then do you, are, are you really th- do you really think, do you really think that this standard that you're coming up with is what's actually going to please God? Are you so very proud and vain as that? On the other hand, if you appeal to some other religion uh, that has maybe a little more history and gravitas to it uh, than the silly rules that you made up in your own brain, then I promise you that you will be crushed by those rules. You will not be able to stand under the weight of it. All of the gods of the nations are idols, and if you worship them, you will become like them. Only Jesus Christ can deliver you from the condemnation of God's righteous law. And so again, <clears throat> there, I suppose, are some in our, in our community, because we are a funny place, um, that maybe say that there doesn't even need to be any kind of objective standard for love, right? There doesn't need to be any kind of objective standard for love. But immediately, if you stop and think about that for 30 seconds, it's immediately absurd, right? It's immediately absurd. And why is that? Well, ask yourself this question. Is it loving to kill your child or to to allow it to live? Well, I don't know. By what standard, right? Is it loving to call a man a man when he wants to be called a woman? I don't know. By what standard? Is it loving to keep someone from killing himself? I don't know. By what standard? Is it loving to confront an alcoholic or a drug addict? I don't know. By what standard? Love apart from the law simply devolves into absurdity and there simply cannot, there, there, just, there isn't any such thing. The law, and this again is a, a very important principle, the law tells us the difference between good and bad and love is the engine that propels us to what's good, right? Law tells us the difference between what's good and bad and, and love propels us to what's good. The truth is, we reject God's law simply, not because we love, truly, but because we simply want to do what we want to do, and we want to shake our fist at God. So to summarize a little bit, God is love, and he has shown his love primarily through Jesus Christ. Next, this love is meaningless apart from the law of God. John says that to love God is to keep his commandments. So it's no wonder then that Love, this concept of love, this word love, is a focus in our cultural wars. Everyone knows, everyone knows that regardless, whatever love is, it is central to who God is, 
right? Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that whatever love is, it is central to who God is. And that's precisely why the attempt by our culture to define love outside of what the Bible says is just another attempt to play God, to make God in our own image. Thousands of years ago, at the beginning of our history, this same fight was played out in the story of Cain and Abel. You remember the story? Abel offers a a sacrifice to God, and God is pleased by it and accepts it. Cain offers a sacrifice, and God refuses it. Genesis 4 says, So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And we know the rest of the story. Cain killed Abel out of his jealousy and rage. Now Jesus is God's acceptable sacrifice and is just like, but very much better than, the sacrifice that Abel gives. But we, like Cain, have attempted to give a different offering. We want to give God something else. We want there to be some other standard. And when God refuses to accept what we give, we, like Cain, become bitter and angry and turn away. This is precisely what, the, what Jesus faced before the Pharisees, right? Jesus said that the Pharisees, that the, the, the blood of all the righteous prophets from the righteous Abel and on would be on the head of the Pharisees, right? And why? Because they, were want, they rejected the offering that God provided and wanted to substitute it with their own. It's the same thing that we face today. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this here in Monroe County? Well, first of all, remember, brothers and sisters, God's love is good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is precisely what your heart needs. It's what your home needs. It's what your work needs. It's what your neighbors need. It's what Bloomington needs. Second, don't try to please God in your own way and offer him some other sacrifice than Jesus Christ. We can love Bloomington by cheerfully and energetically telling our neighbors and friends about Jesus, who is, again, the highest expression of God's love toward us. And we should pursue these people the same way that God has pursued us. His love was not idle. His love pursued, it sought, it knocked, it bore long, it prays long, it waits long, it gives freely. If you ignore, if we as a congregation ignore our friends and neighbors, it can only mean one of two things. It means either that we are hard-hearted and cold and do not love, or it means that we don't believe, right? Let's, brothers and sisters, let's be believing Let's forget about how the world says we should love our neighbors and let's truly love our neighbors. Let's pray.